Welcome to the Rise of the Ageless Starman. Today I have a special guest, Dr. Marina Polyakova from the Max Planck Institute. Hi Marina, how, how are you today? Hi Gil, thanks for inviting me. I'm great and looking forward to our discussion. Marina is a researcher for Alzheimer's and I will let you Marina introduce yourself your your uh, past work and how you got to Alzheimer's research well I come originally from Ukraine where I got the medical education and at some point I became very interested in nervous system and it was either neurology or psychiatry and by some change chain of changes, I came to work as a psychiatrist and I did specialization there. And during my um, specialization, I did work a lot with uh, patients with depression and also with elderly patients who had different types of dementia. And what I learned there is there is so much still to improve. Like for depression patients, we still, we kind of have treatments and we would eventually help the majority of patients, but we don't know how to select them properly. But when I ended up working in the gerontologic department with dementia patients, that was really a very sad experience for me because there are very few drugs approved and they do not cure the disease. They only sort of prolong the duration of it or delay the progress. But actually in the real life, you don't see these changes. You give these drugs, the patients still, your patients still deteriorate. And with the, the, with the number of drugs that are available, I felt that I was really useless there because it would, like any experienced experience nurse would, could prescribe the same drugs as I did. So at some point I came to a conclusion that I, I might be more useful for those patients if I go to research and help somehow there. Yeah, and what what was the study you took after when you decided to go to research? So after my specialization in psychiatry and some short uh, work in the hospital, I went to the proteomics lab in the Vienna Medical University where I was working on the drug targets for Alzheimer's disease. We were basically looking at those uh, protein kinases these are specific enzymes, which actually are the working horses in our cells. So we were looking at some protein kinases involved in learning and memory, and then checking if they are altered in Alzheimer's mice and then human brains. Oh, so, so you got to study it on human brains? It's uh... Post-mortem brains, yes, of, of patients who ha have donated their brains. Ah, okay. And yeah. uh, how 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 uh, effective it is? Is it effect more effective than a uh, mice brain? Well, there is a big problem, of course, of translation of mouse research into human ones. That's why the aim of this project was really to compare whether the changes that we find in one of the best mouse models correspond to what we see in humans. 
And actually, out of 15 uh, kinases that I have screened, 15 proteins, there were strong changes in only one of them. But somehow it also, on one hand, it validates the mouse model. So it means that you can use it for further research. On the other hand, it helps a little bit to understand what's going on in the human brain. But it is a very, very long and complex process. You have a lot of experience uh, treating old people with depression. And are there some uh, similar symptoms between Alzheimer and depression? Well, um, in old age in particular, it is often difficult to distinguish between mild cognitive impairment, which is a pre-stage of Alzheimer's disease, and those patients who have depression, because some symptoms, they sort of overlap. Like in patients who have depression, um, they have s slower thinking capacities, so they have lower attention. And if, um, to diagnose uh, pre-stages of dementia or uh, the mild cognitive impairment, we usually t uh, use the cognitive tests. And basically depression, which kind of slows down all the processes, overlaps with this. Uh, and patients who have depression, they are not, it is very hard to understand whether they're, let's say, whether the scores that they get in attention, memory or learning uh, tests, whether they are really due to cognitive changes or whether they are just due to mood changes. Mm. And this is one of the challenges of the research and the clinic as well. Okay. So what you have an advice for someone who, let's say his partner, okay, an old couple and he de detects some uh, behave, behave uh, changes mm -hmm. in uh, his partner. What would you recommend? Like, uh, how will you say it's more likely to be Alzheimer or more depression? Well, I guess the partner at home could not uh, figure it out himself. So the first recommendation would be to consult some psychologist or psychiatrist. And the investigation should be really deep. In Germany, it is very well done now because every patient gets um, deep cognitive uh, testing, cognitive phenotyping by experienced psychologists. In other countries, it is different. Like in my country, for example, that would be ma mainly the work of psychiatrists. What psychiatrists usually do, they first assess all the symptoms and then they observe as well the patient. And every and actually for every patient, it is important to, to track the changes over time. So whether it is a cognitive decline that would change from some point to another, or whether it is only mood that would change due to some other external reasons or treatment. It's... So it's very important to observe the patient. Mm -hmm. And it is really important to get to say, to the medical uh, specialist as soon as possible, because if it is a depression, it can be relatively uh, easy cured. Mm. Yeah, actually it was my uh, next question. How, what are the chances for curing uh, depression in old age? In psychiatry, in general, depression is considered more or less a disorder which is um, good treated. So we do have a number of 
we do have a big number of antidepressants. We do have a lot of experience already with the psychotherapy. And basically, the majority of patients could, uh, be, uh, could reach uh, remission over the treatment time. But the, most, the biggest challenge is to find the right medication and to find the right, the right therapy for each individual patient. Is, is there a difference between a, a young person depression or how his, his uh, mind is than uh, an old older mm. people with uh, depression? Well, there are big differences, of course, over the lifetime. So it, depression would look uh, differently in completely young people who would, uh, for example, um, feel difficulties with their education or work and with the old people where it's kind of accepted that people are aging and sometimes they feel sad, sometimes their memory or attention is not so good. So what we, tip, what we very often see in uh, later stages of life is that depression becomes more subtle. Like in young people, it, uh, it is very often a full-blown major depressive episode where the person is sad throughout the day, uh, loses interest in his or her everyday activities, cannot go to work and so on. But in old age, it's kind of kind of more light version. The, mm. the person feels sad from time to time. Um, attention is worse. The sleep is worse. And this is very often accepted as normal for, for all life. But this is, in fact, the, the symptom of depression. And yeah. this depression is also cured differently because uh, the depression... Like those full-blown depressive episodes, they are well treated. They're shown to be well treated with antidepressants, but with the mild depression, it's different. So this, uh, the treatment of those patients should include more psychotherapy or exercise. Yeah. Okay. So um, it sounds to me like it's a little bit more confusing in old age to to notice if you are depressed or just part of life. Um, but you have uh, experience in uh, neuroplasticity, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, this was one of my topics. Yeah. <laughs> so um, does neuro- neuroplasticity neuroplastici- um, have a role on the changes of the brain that implicates Alzheimer in the old age? Let me probably tell you first what's neuroplasticity and how it is implicated in yeah. depression and aging, and then we probably come to Alzheimer's. Okay. So neuroplasticity is kind of a very exciting term and people like it a lot. And this is basically the ability of our brain to adapt to a changing environment. On more of uh, a more biological level, it means that it is the ability of our neurons to build, uh, to maintain those connections they have between each other and to build new ones. And we do have already developed some markers of neuroplasticity, some proteins that we can assess, for example, in the blood. 
And I did focus on one of them called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And it is a very, very exciting topic for me personally. So what we see in the old age is that this neuroplasticity in generally declines, in general declines. And uh, on, in the brain, we, we actually see in the normal aging brain, uh, we see that um, not the neuronal number is, is declining. So neurons themselves do not die. But what they do is they lose the connections between each other. Mm. And this is uh, very, well, if it happens in those regions which are responsible for uh, emotion processing, this often results in depression. This is one of the main hypotheses uh, of depression nowadays. Well, when it happens throughout the brain, it results in more general uh, symptoms, like the, the loss of many more other functions. Attention, well, memory to some extent, and so on. I'm, I'm trying to, to see if I got it correctly. The neuro, neuroplasticity is the change, changes in the brain over time and how it gets used to the environment. But from the perspective of the um, connection between the... Between neurons. Between neurons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Between so they cells. So they well, I had one episode I have to say about the hyperbaric treatment, mm -hmm. and it's we we talked a little bit about it that you can you can uh, re, re um that neurons that die you can re rebuild them so. That you can re, re uh, make them. Uh, you can you can make it to live again the neurons and mm -hmm. is and um, so you say it's it's the connection that is disconnected. It's not that they are dying. Well, I'm just telling you about the normal aging brain. Basically, yeah. in the brain, we have gray matter, which, can, which consists of neurons mm -hmm. and their uh, close connections. And we have white matter, which consists of long connections between neurons and distant brain parts. So th there is a very interesting artifact that we see on MRI. We usually see that the gray matter uh, reduces over the uh, time, so with aging. But when we look at uh, into the histological uh, papers, you cannot see that the neurons are dying. Basically, what we see in um, these histological papers is that the number, the amount of white matter reduces. It means that the amount of connection between neurons um, is uh, reduced and then um, that they are not able to communicate and to react that flexibly uh, to the situations that happen in the surrounding environment. It's really hard for me to judge about the dying neurons. I have really no experience there. Mm -hmm. mm. But it can happen. It can die. Like it's not well, only... Of, 
of course, they do die, especially in those patients who have neurodegenerative diseases. However, I'm not aware. It's, it's a bit hard for me to comment on that. Okay. Marina. Yeah. I am as a non-scientist uh, human being. When I hear about uh, dementia, I usually focus on uh, the memory symptoms, loss, mm -hmm. loss of memory. And I'm sure most of the audience is maybe not most, but a lot of the audience are like this too. But there are some differences and different types of Alzheimer and dementia. Can you make a little bit, do a little bit order here? Mm -hmm. what, what is going on? Yeah, so very similarly to depression, dementia is a very broad term. And we indeed focus often only on Alzheimer's disease as it is the most common and actually the most um, uh, researched uh, type of uh, dementia. However, there, is, there are many more cognitive domains and many more other diseases. I'm very excited to actually experience it during my research that um, uh, a recent classification of uh, mental disorders uh, coming from United States, DSM-5, it's like the most accepted uh, classification in the research. It has recently uh, published, it, actually four years ago, not that recently, it has recently classified uh, those cognitive domains into six uh, different subtypes. So now we are talking not only about memory and learning, we are talking about changes in attention, we are, we are talking about changes in language, social cognition, um, also visual construction. That means that the ability to navigate in the uh, external uh, uh, external world, external cues. Uh, we are talking about executive function. And now it seems that some patients do indeed have problems in memory. Some patients have problems with attention only. Some patients would feel that their, their vocabulary has reduced, so they, they should be assessed more from the language part. And some problems do have, uh, some patients do have problems with uh, navigating social situations. Mm. And until, until recently, we did not focus on that. We only thought that um, dementia is a problem with memory. Um, focusing only on memory means that we kind of ignored some other functions. And what we found in one of our research is that basically if you do not see, if you do not uh, assess non-memory domains, you may uh, kind of lose at least 15% of, uh, of the population who does have those problems. And this is a new development. It is not yet widely uh, accepted, but I think that in the future we will not be talking about memory and non-memory uh, cognitive impairment, but we will be really talking about memory impairment or attention impairment or social cognition impairment. And once we develop more uh, markers for these diseases also in the brain or in the periphery, like CSF or even blood, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, we will have much wider uh, uh, overview of that. And at some point, we will come to 
better treatments and more specific treatments. That will so, take time, of course. Yeah, so yeah, you think it will not stay as a, such a, a, you know, one word dementia or Alzheimer to all the, those diseases? It will um, be uh, defined as uh, each each uh, disease will be defined from for the symptom like we can uh, refer to it as uh, there will be new terms to define the disease no actually those terms already exist so there is an alzheimer's uh, disease there is a vascular dementia there is the frontotemporal lobal degeneration which have certain subtypes like behavioral variant or uh, certain language variants so these terms do exist and they are all united under the term of dementia. However, they, we do not have treatments so far. And once we, do once we do develop some treatments, it will be really important to, to find those groups for, of patients for whom they will be really efficient. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and now, like... With the patient that you see, what is the uh, major of the of the symptoms they suffer? Is it really from memory, lack of memory? Hmm. Actually, if we are looking at those who have who do not have de developed dementia yet, if we look to into patients who have cognitive impairment, we most often see the the difficulties with attention. Yeah. And we do see also some difficulties with the executive function, which means difficulties with the planning and kind of organizing everything. We do see those as well. However, like I think that's more, just more historically, we usually talk about memory when we talk about dementia. And this will change over time. And also, if the disease is more progressed, these symptoms really start to overlap a lot. Mm -hmm. And so far, we do not have tools to distinguish the exact biological subtypes in every patient. Yeah, and, and all of the symptoms are one-way road, like the memory. There's no way that uh, with the, without intervention that... Uh, your attention will get back to be in focus? Uh, this is one of the questions which is also really discussed now in the scientific uh, area. The question is whether or when uh, should you start the intervention? So if the disease is really progressed when you see severe memory impairment or any other of those domains that I have, sh have shown you, Unfortunately, it seems that it is one-way road. So you can maybe delay it by exercising more, but once you do have these severe problems, we do not know really scientifically proved way that would help wide, wide uh, number of patients. If we're talking about the mild cognitive impairment, which is a pre-stage, we do see that not every patient who has mild cognitive impairment develops dementia in, in the end. That means, and we actually can really weak, we really have weak evidence to prognose who will develop dementia and who will not. 
So for every patient who has noticed uh, some changes in his memory or attention, it is really recommended to take uh, all the uh, existing methods to kind of compensate for that. So basically exercise more helps every, like helps in every disease. And in those, in those diseases uh, that are develop uh, developing with ages in particular, then having some mental challenge like learning a new language is really a good thing to, to do, as well as develop some compensating strategies for everyday life in order if you do not have enough attention like to switch the light every, every time, maybe you make a sticker at your home that would remind you and mm. over time you kind of compensate for that deficit. So it's something you can live with? That's the... It's something you can live with, of course. If it is, if it is just a, a preliminary stage like mild cognitive impairment, it means that you, patients who have mild cognitive impairment, maybe we have to, to start with definitions. Um, they do notice something, so they have subjective feeling that something is wrong. Then if you test them through this thorough um, cognitive testing, um, they will have re reduced cognitive scores compared to norms that we have. But the thing is that they will still manage to live uh, independently and basically to manage the majority of essential uh, life um, duties without external help. So those patients who have this, this kind of trait, uh, they, they, it doesn't mean that they will develop the dementia. They mm. have some chances indeed, increased as compared to other ones, but it's also not, not really clear in which way they will, um, in which way they will develop. So I think that the most important thing here, if you have someone like that in your family or, or environment, just to take the active position and to realize that your health is not really predefined by anyone and to do maximum of what you can in order to, um, in order to move this disease in other direction. Okay. Um, so, um, tell us more about your uh, research, what you focus on. Um, you worked a lot with proteins. Uh, are you still working on it? Well, I was working in, in pro with proteins in the lab first, and then I moved here to Max Planck Institute for Cognitive Neuroscience, where we focus more on neuroimaging. But I did bring some of the experience here, and I was looking into depression in old age, and to some extent also touching, touching uh, the mild cognitive impairment topic. And I was looking into those markers that uh, would kind of distinguish depression patients from non-depressed patients and also predict um, treatment response for depression, for, to antidepressants. Mm. And actually what I have learned is that depression is a very broad term, as I mentioned before. There are so many different subtypes in the clinics. So one patient have depressed mood and, and bad sleep. Some others would 
be kind of okay with the mood, but would have uh, reduced interest in their everyday activities. Some would have uh, suicidal thoughts and so on. So it's a big, there is a big variety in the clinics. There is yeah. also, also a huge variety in the biological level. So some patients would indeed have the problems with neuroplasticity um, that was shown already on the biological level with, with animal research and antidepressants actually increase, the, uh, in, increase those proteins that are responsible for neuroplasticity. Some patient would, patients would actually have more uh, inflammatory changes in their brain and uh, blood. So they would probably need some modified uh, therapy later on. However, now we're at the stage when we are still looking in, into defining these biological subtypes. Mm -hmm. And one of the particularly interesting topics for, for me would be how, how can we connect all those proteins that we measure with those changes that we see in the brain. Because in some patients, we do see um, reduced brain volume or, and, and reduced cortical thickness in uh, emotion regulation regions. In some patients, we do see more changes similar to Alzheimer's, like reduced hippocampal volume. The hippocampus is the uh, region of the brain which is responsible uh, for memory and spatial navigation. So... I do see this development of this field in, in combination of all these measures. And I think that at some points we will be able to, to find the subtype, biological subtypes. In my research in particular, I have looked into this pro, uh, changes of the serum markers. So basically blood, uh, blood markers of neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we have shown, yeah. You you measure them with, like uh, the changes on a, an image, or you take it some. No, we took blood samples and then the, we analyzed the amount of protein in blood serum. Okay. And it seems to reflect, uh, to some extent, uh, the changes that are that we see in the brain. So basically, we see the reduction of this uh, protein called brain-derived neurotrophic factor in the blood, and it seems to correspond to what people find in animal brains. And in some patients, we do see that when they do respond to treatment, this, uh, this protein will increase in the blood. However, it is kind of true on the very broad level, general level, but it, it, would, not be, it would not be working for each individual patient. Mm. So okay. the challenge now is to figure out for whom this is true and to use it somehow in the clinics. Yeah, actually, it brings me to the next question. Question: If, uh, <clears throat> if gene, gene uh, matters, as mm -hmm. you see, and how much? Mm -hmm. Well, we do see a very interesting uh, pattern of um, heritability in psychiatric disorders. So there are certain number of genes that are that one would find in different diseases that means that they are kind of responsible for more general functions 
there's, there are a certain number of genes that are more specific to one or the other psychiatric diseases. For, for depression, the heritability is estimated as at about 30%. The other things are basically changes due to environment. And the environment, like we can say that the process of aging is part of the environment. Um, I would rather say that the aging process is the part of uh, biology, genetics, or like, yeah. Yeah, but, but it's yeah, it's also it's also it's also very complex. So the environment would influence our epigenetics, how our genes are regulated. It's very complex. Like what it sounds to me like when we spoke before about the disconnections in the neurons. So mm -hmm. this can be like uh, for for any human human who is getting old. Yeah, this is true for majority of us. Also so, a bit true. Yeah. So Alzheimer can like maybe I, I don't know, but maybe it sounds to me like that some genes will make it like sooner. But in the end, if you will live to uh, 120, then you, finally you will have Alzheimer. Yeah, at, yeah at, at the moment, the situation is so that in many of the medical fields, we have pro progressed really a lot. And we are managing better and better many cancers and uh, cardiovascular diseases. And in the end, when we, if we are able to treat all of them pretty good, the majority of us will suffer from some sort of neurodegenerative diseases, whether it is Alzheimer's or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or any others. That seems yeah. to be the, the thing. Okay, because what I like what I uh, learned from there are many startups now that tries to give you you, you make a gene mapping and uh, they start to give you and they, and they will give you a diagnostic about what genes you have and what is the pro probability that you have Alzheimer or Parkinson from what I from what like uh, what I think is that like it's emphasizing too much about the gene because in the end of the life as you said we all will have something yeah um i think there is kind of an ethical problem about this as well so this was the same the thing was the 23 and me as far as i know from some time ago they yeah. they wanted to to say that you have some sort of genes responsible for this or that disease. But in the end, they had just to focus on the ancestral uh, tree. Um, yeah, we have very actually very like relatively few cases of familiar familial diseases. That means that those patients who have indeed those genes that would cause the disease. Yeah. And the majority of other cases are called sporadical. Uh, that means that nobody really knows what is the reason for that. There is a bit of danger if you say the person that, it, that this person has the, um, the genes for Alzheimer's, like not everybody will become proactive and try to change something. So it's kind of ethical problem I see now. And I don't personally have the solution to it. At the moment, I think that um, 
in many countries it is um, not recommended. Yeah. Not to say forbidden. I don't. I'm not completely sure. In Israel, it's uh, forbidden. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's, that it's. Yeah, it's in many. It should be forbidden in many countries. Yeah. Because uh, well, because it's never hundred percent. There are yeah, like very they, few cases where it is really hundred percent chance that a person yeah. will develop the disease. There is a fear that if someone uh, will, you know, is at home and he gets the results alone, and uh, how we will react to some of the uh, diagnostics. They shift it a little bit, the product, and they they are now uh, focused on uh, helping uh, researchers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is amazing, actually, that all these yeah. companies are starting to enter the research field. This I find really amazing. Yeah. So, um, why are you not why? Are you optimistic that we will find a cure for Alzheimer or dementia? Oh, well, as a researcher, I have to be realistic to some extent because we need evidence first, and it's it the time shows that it is really really hard to find something. Um, over the last ten years, there was. There is, a, there is always some incremental progress. Um, every day we learn something new, we, we learn how, which we have learned already so many molecular pathways that are involved, uh, how this uh, pathology spreads around the brain. Now we see more and more studies finding um, connections between Alzheimer's and uh, either viruses or even some uh, bacterias. Um, it's very, it's a very complex issue, and I think that there is a bit of the difficulties in translation of many of the findings into the real life, because in these years I have seen several very interesting and very promising research projects, but actually that could not find their way into into the real life, mm -hmm. and I see the problem there. I think that there is some problem with this funding that that is very often short term and some projects just die on this academic shelves. Is it because of uh, lack of funding or lack of uh, you need to, to make research on humans and there is lack of uh, resources for uh, databases and humans who will participate and the uh, FDA barriers like to make a clinical research what why is it dying like, well the hum, human humans actually do participate now we see more and more open databases where you can apply for research project just uh, sub, uh, submitting your research proposal and people are getting more and more interested in that of course if one is doing the clinical trial on human beings uh, the the risk is very very high that's why FDA has full right to protect uh, participants of clinical trials. However, many of the basic research projects, they are funded by really short-term grants, like for two, three years. And in, in fact, it works like the person arrives there, has a postdoc project, finishes it, and then it, this person cannot continue with this research, but has to look for the new job. And very often it's really difficult to bring the same project and to develop it further. It's only the really 
only really established researchers who are able now to uh, to build a very long and um, kind of continuous research. Yeah. But still many of even their projects are relying on the short-term grants. And that's why it's really hard to develop everything further than few findings in the in in one or two studies. Yeah, it sounds hard. It's not like a start a technological startup that if you have uh, so- someone who already built like a similar technology, you know he will make the product and it it's only about the marketing here. Like you really need to have a the investor needs needs to have almost that a belief that he doesn't care <laughs> about the money in order to to invest in such a long-term product that you, you even don't know if it will work in the end. Yeah, exactly. This is the thing. Like startup world is to one extent much more flexible. There is much uh, much more money in it. But on the other hand, this money have to be returned at some point. So investors do not want to invest in those really long-term projects. Yeah, we have to find some way to to build a bridge between those. And I think that actually now many things are going on in US and also they do start in Europe now. So I think that once this startups and business part comes to this uh, field, Mm -hmm. they will somehow facilitate the research. Yeah, are there startups focusing on the treatment or on the funding? Uh, well, I'm I'm not a, I'm not sure what about funding, but there are some ta- there are some startups really focusing on the treatments now, like new drug discoveries. They're coming every day, and we will just we just have to wait to see which of them actually makes it happen. Like uh, word genomics, for example, or so. Um, I do follow one of the startups who makes already clinical trials on more systematic therapy of the blood transfusion therapy that I find really interesting. What can you say the name? It is called Alcahast and it is a spin-off on the, of the Stanford uh, University of a group that is doing the young blood transfusions. That is, that is this research I find really interesting and innovative. Yeah. And we will have more and more of them for sure. Okay. So we we touched a little bit the startups community. Of course, technological improvement will bring us uh, new tools for researchers like big data Mm -hmm. tools, the 23andMe. But what do you see is the biggest uh, improvement in the last 10 years? And what do you think that in the future 10 years will be available to us for, for you as a researcher to, to, to have a better research and, uh, and uh, show more results on uh, neuroscience and neurodegenerative diseases? Um, well, I see now the research is so, sort of doing this incremental progress. Um, I'm not really into genetics, so it's hard to me to judge about that. 
we have so many tools now with the with the proteomics and I did work with with it. I think that the big um, some big discoveries will come out from there. We now look more and more into different biomarkers that we can measure in all kinds of biological liquids and in the brain. So some drug targets will come from there for sure. Um, unfortunately, this progress is slower than I would like everyone would love it to see. Yeah. Yeah. But what do you think in the next, in the future will be available like in 10 years from now? In 10 years, oh, you want me to make this, this <laughs> forecast? <laughs> yeah, um, make a bet. Mm, that's difficult. So I, since I have worked more with the diagnostic part, I think that in 10 years we will be mm, able to diagnose different types of uh, pre-dementia stages. That's for sure. That's we are already going in that direction. And I hope that in 10 years it will be accepted widely. So it means that we can intervene faster in the... It means that we can select the target groups better. But, okay. And which is good for research because once, once you select the right uh, patient group, then you can do, then your research becomes more focused and it's... And, um, accurate. Yeah, and accurate and the the chances to get the answers with which really um, are important for these patients will increase substantially. Oh. In terms of treatment, it is really hard to say because now, now it's really, really slow. Yeah. Let's see what happens. <laughs> Let's be opt optimistic. <laughs> Try to. So now you work at uh, the Max Planck Institute and Part of the reasons I'm doing the podcast, I'm always telling my guests, is to make young students uh, go to the to the field of uh, age and age-related uh, diseases research, and tell them how how is it to work in the Max Planck. Well, Max Planck is uh, Max Planck Society is one of the biggest research societies in Germany, focused mainly on basic research, and there is a big number of institutes for any topic. Um, I'm working in, in the Institute for the Cognitive and Brain Sciences, especially focused on human research, and I do find it really exciting. So we do have excellent, really world-best facilities here. We do, we are very competitive in terms of recruiting excellent researchers. So we really have uh, best researchers from all the world and they're coming here. Most of them working for several years and then go further to develop their career. And we have lots of support. Um, on one hand, scientific, on one hand, scientific support from all the community we have. On the other hand, we have a lot of uh, the um, more personal support. We have lots of uh, workshops, courses, career development, project management, grant application writing, and so on. Basically, everything that you need. We are, in particular in Leipzig, we are situated in a very academic environment because we have university, a big university. We have two more uh, Max Planck Institutes focused on math 
uh, and anthropology. And it is a very, really, really very exciting um, um, community to live in because every time you meet some excellent people who have done some excellent work and who have some very progressive ideas. So I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy to work here. For yeah, sure. sounds like a fruitful environment. Yeah, indeed. Part. Yeah. And it With is good to come to this environment, take the experience and maybe go back to Israel and bring it there. It's yeah. always very, very um, accepted and welcomed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and from the older states, like even from the US, do you take, uh, do you have a lot of uh, researchers from uh, East, from Asia? From Eastern countries. Yeah. Uh, we do have these researchers as well, but they are not as, uh, as big in their number as uh, European students. Actually, it's, it's, it's more of the distance problem. Like we have some people from US and Canada, but they, there are also not so many of them. Mm. But they are they are welcome. They are accepted for sure. Marina, can you can you please uh, tell us what are the three projects we can uh, follow in your institute in the Max Planck that are uh, having a promising uh, research? Okay. I think that I'd, I'd rather tell you about our institute in general. We have uh, several departments here uh, which are doing different types of work, but all of that is interesting. So I'm working in the neurology department where we have several labs uh, focusing on how our brain is influenced by our blood pressure, how our brain is influenced and how it influences obesity, how it is involved in the aging, in particular looking into the uh, brain aging and the memory part of that. We also have some groups uh, looking into the female brain in particular, which is very new and exciting topic. In our institute, we also have the part of uh, the department of the um, the department of uh, neurophysics, where we look, uh, where researchers look a lot into the improvement of the methods of the brain scanning. We also have a department which uh, studies very in depth the language development and um, language changes over the aging process. And we have a recently established um, department. Is this AI tools? No. Um, it's different. So some people do use AI for sure, but yeah. not everyone. We also do really practical experiments, sometimes with children. We look at how, how language develops in children. And we also do these experiments with patients uh, who suffered from stroke or uh, from dementia, as we discussed. We have a, a university clinics of cognitive neurology that is basically focused on treating those patients and developing new methods and testing them already in the real uh, life experience. So we really have lots of the research and we have recently uh, uh, opened department which is focusing on how our brain perceives the space and is able to navigate itself in space. So it's really worth to have a look at our website. If you're a young researcher, you will definitely find something interesting for you. Would you recommend a new student to enter the field? 
Yeah, of course, I would recommend to enter the field. The neuroscience itself is very exciting field. Brain is one of the most complex, actually most complex structure probably in this world to understand. And it is really, really exciting to look at it from different angles. What I would also recommend to a new student is to think from the very beginning about what, what would be interesting for him and look more for a topic rather than the place. Mm. Also sometimes uh, look um, at the supervisor that he will um, select because it's not only getting a job, it's in the end spending some part of your life with, with a person very closely um, from whom you will to some point depend. On the other hand, you will be really independent in in the in doing your research so it's important to find the person who fits you the topic that fits you and in ideal case also the the person or the place if it happens in the place where the um, high quality research is produced this would be an excellent combination okay thank you marina it was a very interesting uh, interview I, I myself will need to sit and listen again to to digest everything we we spoke about. And again, thank you for joining me today. And thank I hope, you, Gil. And I hope it will uh, create new um, new insights for uh, other researchers, and uh, it it will show uh, investors that progress is made and uh, we can make a difference in the field. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gil. Thanks for having me.